0: Kind of end our chapel year with some praise to the Lord, and the band is going to do that in a little while. But I want to share some things with you this morning before they do. As I was thinking about what I would like to leave you with as you go, some of you will not be back. You're going to graduate. Praise the Lord for that. You're going to be off on to whatever it is God's called you to do. Uh, Some of you are going to have challenges this summer as you go out in the mission fields of the world. Some of you are going to have the greatest experience of your lifetime. Some of you, of course, are going to work and be involved in your church. What could I say to all of you? What could I bring before you that would have the greatest amount of significance to you? I was drawn to something that may be a very personal love of mine. You may not have thought of it the way I think of it and think of it that way so often. But I was drawn to a vision of Jesus Christ that's in the first chapter of Revelation. I just want to draw you there for just a brief time this morning before we do our worship. Revelation chapter 1. A portion of the book of Revelation that does not get discussed very often, and yet it is the first vision of Christ in the book of Revelation. And it is a tremendously instructive vision. John, the Apostle, is on the island of Patmos, which, believe me, I've been there, is a rock, nothing more, a rock, and a small one at that, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He has been exiled there for the gospel, sitting on that rock in a cave, and I had the privilege of being in that cave, what an emotional, moving experience to to stand in that cave and that cave goes back so far in tradition, we're fairly confident that's the cave he was in. There aren't a lot of them around there, and that, that is the traditional site where John received the vision of Christ. It, it would have come in glorious contrast to the stark barrenness of that rock. I mean, it is a rock. If uh, somebody didn't break up the rock and try to plant something, it's likely that nothing would grow there. And there John was in the cave, exiled because of his faithfulness to the gospel. John had tremendous reason to be discouraged. And I think maybe that's what draws me to this scene. He had lived to see Jerusalem destroyed. The city that was God's city, the city that was the apple of God's eye, the city that God said would never be wiped out ultimately, was temporarily destroyed. He had lived to see one million of his Jewish brothers and sisters massacred. One million of them. At least a hundred thousand bodies of Jews were desecrated by being thrown over the city wall for nothing more than the fun of it. He had lived to see nine hundred and eighty-five Jewish towns destroyed. All across the land of Israel. Now, how could he believe that that the Messiah had come and would return to establish his kingdom? It looked like everything was going the other direction. Titus Vespasian had come with this massive Roman army, camped outside Jerusalem, and eventually massacred and destroyed the city. He had lived to see the temple destroyed. Furthermore... He had now outlived all of his apostles, all of his apostolic friends, we should call them. All of them were systematically terminated by Christ-haters. Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded, and so it went. They were all gone. Now, it was 96 A.D., 26 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. All the rest had been martyred. And here he was on a rock... Ten miles long at the longest point, five miles wide at the widest, exiled to die. There were some churches in the Gentile world. Those churches sort of ran the postal route, the postal route through Asia Minor. They were Ephesus, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, Philadelphia. You know those churches. They're mentioned in the second and third chapter of Revelation. John had seen those churches built, seen those churches flourish. And now he lived long enough to see that Ephesus had lost its first love and the Lord had threatened to shut it down. Pergamos was idolatrous, immoral, and the Lord said, I'm going to come and fight against you. Imagine Jesus coming to fight against his own church. Thyatira had compromised itself by sin and worldliness and faced imminent divine judgment. Sardis, the church at Sardis, was dead. It had a name that it lived, but it was dead. Laodicea was so nauseating, it was enough to make the Lord vomit. That was the scenario in John's moment as he sat in a cave on the rock called Patmos. All the hopes and dreams that flourished early in his life when Jesus called him to himself and his brother James and Peter and all the rest. All those great years of miracles and the raising of the dead and the tremendous teaching of Jesus were in the past now. No more miracles were happening. Even in the last days of the Apostle Paul, he had to leave his friends sick. The gift of miracles began to fade. The signs and wonders were passed. Israel was destroyed. Jerusalem was desecrated. The Jewish people were massacred. The ones that were still alive had rejected their Messiah. The churches that had been planted were dead and dying and under judgment from the Lord of the church himself. Pretty bleak picture. And here's the last living apostle. No honor, no respect, no congregation, no ministry, sitting on a rock, in exile. Plenty of reason to be discouraged. It's not unlike today. I have to tell you, I get discouraged. I get discouraged with the church. I get discouraged with Christian people. I get discouraged with... Uh, Folks I know very well who betray the truth, who betray the Lord. I get discouraged with compromise with the world. I get discouraged with immorality. I get discouraged with heresy, carnality, apathy, materialism, unsound doctrine. There's plenty of things out there to make the servant of God discouraged. That's how we find John when the first vision comes. And... I think a special touch by the Lord. It happens to be Sunday. He says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It was a special day. It was a day when John was remembering the resurrection of Christ. And one can only imagine what flooded the mind of that old man. That old man, a mind filled with so many memories, sat all alone, discouraged on a Sunday, remembering that his Lord had risen and trying to figure out what was going on. It was at that moment, verse 10 says, that John writes, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. I mean, that's loud. And the voice said, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Again, those were the seven churches that followed the the, the route of the postal districts of Asia Minor. Heaven opened up, and the old man heard a voice. And the voice was no other than the voice of the exalted Son of God. He was commanded to write what he was about to see, and here came the first vision in the Apocalypse the Apocalypse of John. There are a number of visions of Christ. If you were to, to characterize Revelation in one sentence, you would say it is a series of visions of the exalted Christ. And each of the visions that comes through the book of Revelation depicts some feature of Christ's glory. The first vision unfolds as he turns around. Verse 12 says, I turn to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, here's the first vision, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, if you look at the last few words of verse 20, it'll tell you what they represent. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let me tell you what they would be just so you have some kind of mental image. The way they would provide light in a home would be with a little terracotta, usually a little terracotta, lamp made out of clay, and they would fill it with oil. They would float a wick in it and light the wick. That was the lamp. Now, in order to get the light up, they would simply have some kind of a stand, and they would put the light, the lamp, the little oil lamp on the stand, and that's what John saw. He saw seven stands and seven lamps on those Stands, oil lamps. But more than that, this was a very unusual sight because these were not the typical terracotta lamps. They were seven golden lampstands. Now, this indicates something of great value, something precious, something beautiful, something costly. And what is it? It's the church. Seven is the number of completion. So when John turns around, he sees the church, the complete church represented by these seven candlesticks or lampstands, which represent the seven churches of Asia Minor, which are sort of representative of all churches. So he sees a vision of the complete church, symbolic of the whole church. And I suppose his first uh, reaction was to wonder why it was gold, because frankly, it it didn't look too precious at the time, with all the decline and the decay and the sin and the compromise that John knew was characteristic of it. But nevertheless, the church is always precious, and there's one compelling reason, reason why it's always precious, and it is this reason it was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And whatever it is that, that costs the most is the most valuable, right? The price determines the value. Nothing ever had a price like the church. It cost the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Thus, it is golden, valuable, precious, more valuable than anything. So he turns to see the church. And then in verse 13, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Who is this? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus Christ. He turns and he sees Christ moving in the church. He sees the Lord of the church. And what an encouraging thing that is. And there are several features. This is tremendous. Several features. First, there is the Son of Man in the middle of the church. And it reminds us that Christ... Christ is the head of the church. It is His church. It belongs to Him. You remember in Matthew 16, He said, I will build my church. He purchased it with His own blood. He paid the price. It belongs to Him. What an encouragement that is. I know as one who serves in the church, one who ministers to the church, Sometimes I can feel like all of this responsibility is kind of on my back and this is my church and I get very discouraged with it and I struggle to try to make it what it ought to be and I'm unsuccessful at that. And I step back and realize that Christ is in the middle of his church, building his church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. John sees him as the Son of Man. That's a very important title. Son of Man is taken out of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where it says, where the prophet says these words, Oh, one like a son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. And Daniel says that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and will never be destroyed. And of course, that encompasses all of His redeemed. And so, the church is His. It belongs to Him. It is invincible. He will build it. It is eternal. And it shows Him moving in His church. He is in unceasing communion with His church. Just when you think that things have gone wrong and maybe the Lord's gone away, John turns around and there He is. Sometimes in the church, we wonder if God has taken His hand of blessing away or if the Lord went on a trip and is working in another area. Sometimes we might wonder that here when things go in a disappointing way in our college campus or in your personal life, where is the Lord? And you turn around like John in the midst of the of the terrible circumstances that he had endured, and there is the church and there in the middle of the church is Jesus Christ who promised I will never leave you or forsake you. John 14, 18, he said that. You know, I'll not leave you, I'll forsake you. I will come to you. Matthew twenty-eight, twenty, lo, I'm with you always. John fourteen, twenty-three, if anyone loves me, I will make my home with him. Colossians three eleven, Christ is all and in all. The Lord has not left his church. No matter how the church struggles, no matter how we as Christians struggle, no matter how many things go wrong, the Son of Man is alive in the midst of his church, carrying on his ministry. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that confidence. No matter what goes on, the living, glorified, exalted Christ is here. He hasn't left us. He hasn't left his church. You may go home to your church and you may say, you know, things aren't the way they should be in this church. And you're going to be more acute about that when you go because you've been here. And you may be going to see some things in your church that concern you that didn't concern you. Or maybe there's been a change in leadership. Or maybe there's a difficulty there. Or maybe you're going to hear something from the pulpit that doesn't square with what you know the Word of God teaches because you've learned some things in your classes and in the Word of God. And you're going to have to ask the question, is the Lord in His church? And the answer is, He is. He is. And He's building His church. He never cuts off His intimate relationship to His church. He may have to do some things in the church, but he's there doing them because he will build his church. First thing we see then is the Lord in the midst of his church, intimately associated with his church. The second thing we see is he intercedes for his church. This is very important. It says he was clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded around his breast or his chest with a golden girdle. The Greek term here for robe is potoresis. And when you look at this symbolic language and you ask yourself, what does this mean? You could be looking at a king because kings wore robes. You could be looking at a prophet because a, prophet's also, a prophet also occasionally wore robes. However, wherever you see the word poteras, that Greek word, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament Greek version, which is the Septuagint, it always refers to the high priest. And you will notice also that he has a golden belt, it's called a golden girdle. It really means a golden belt. It's a sash, gold sash worn across his chest. Now, only one figure in the Old Testament wore that, and that was the high priest. Exodus 28, 4, 29, 5, 39, 29. So what do we have here? We have Christ in his priestly garb. He's wearing the robe of the high priest with the gold sash across his chest. What what is that indicating to us? Here is Christ acting as the priest in his church. What does a priest do? Intercedes on behalf of the people. A prophet, just to make a distinction, comes to us to speak for God. A priest goes to God to speak for us. A priest is interceding on our behalf. That's why we are reminded in Hebrews 2.17, That Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews 3.16, Jesus, the high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4.15, a high priest who can sympathize with all our weaknesses. And young people, no matter how we struggle, he intercedes for us. He is our priest. There he is in his priestly garb interceding on behalf of his people in all their weaknesses and all their failures and all their ministries and all their privileges and all their opportunities and all their callings and all their ministries he is there interceding he makes the path of victory possible no matter how difficult it is he goes before us pleads with god on our behalf he is our faithful merciful high priest He never lets us be tempted above that we are able and always makes a way of escape. He always grants us mercy for every trial. He has an unequaled, undiminished devotion and sympathy with his beloved people through all their dangers, all their sorrows, all their trials, and all their temptations. And believe me, he's been exposed to all of them. He was in all points tempted like as we are. He never lets anybody fall through the cracks. All that the Father gives to me, he says in John 6, will come to me and I will raise him at the last day. I will never turn them down. I will not lose one of them. He is moving his children toward Christ's likeness He is making them more like himself. That's his priestly work. And even though it looks difficult and even though it looks challenging and even though it's hard to see his hand at certain times, Christ is at work interceding for the holiness and the virtue and the growth and the Christlikeness of his own people. He intercedes. He is our great high priest. And when Satan comes before the throne and brings an accusation against us, and he does that, he's day and night before the throne, Revelation says, accusing us, telling God he ought to damn us. That's what he's doing. He went up there and told God in the case of Job, you don't have anybody on earth who's faithful to you. Just the rich people. You give them so much stuff. That's why they're loyal. Let me have Job and strip him and he'll turn his back on you. And God said, have at it. And Satan went down and stripped Job of everything, his family, all his possessions, his own health. Left him only a cantankerous, nagging wife who said, curse God and die. And Job never wavered in his faith. In fact, his faith got stronger. Why? Because God held on to Job. No matter what Satan does, no matter what accusations he brings, who is going to lay any charge to God's elect that's going to stick after God himself has already pronounced him righteous? So Christ intercedes for us against the accusations of Satan. No matter how you feel you have failed, the Lord holds on and intercedes for his own. He is our merciful high priest who comes before the throne of God on our behalf, and God hears the intercessory prayers of Christ for us. Thirdly, he purifies his church. This is most interesting in verse 14. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. After speaking about the robe that he sees as he looks at the vision of Christ, John speaks about his form, head, hair, eyes, feet. He even goes on to talk about voice, hand, mouth, face. But he starts here with his head and his hair were white like white wool like snow. Now, if you take that back to Daniel, where it comes from, Daniel 7, 9, there it is used to describe God Almighty. And again, this reminds us that Jesus is God and the term white here, would you notice it in verse 14, his hair and head were white, like white wool, is not a flat white. It's a, it's a Greek word, leukon that means blazing. It's more like the white of a fire or the white of a light than painted white. It's the symbol of eternal, glorious purity, holiness. Out of that glowing light, it says in verse 14, comes... Flaming fire. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Like in Daniel 10.6 where it talks about flaming torches. What is this? Penetrating holy omniscience. Penetrating holy intelligence. What does that mean? No secrets. The Lord sees reality. Nothing hidden. Hebrews 4.13 says about our high priest, There is no creation hidden from his sight, but all things are laid bare to his eyes. He sees everything. though he intercedes for his church and nothing will cause him to stop loving his church, it doesn't mean he is unconcerned about their sin. He doesn't damn his own for sinning, but he looks to their sin and is concerned about it. His penetrating eyes, what are they finding? They're finding what is below the surface. He wants his church pure. He gave Himself to sanctify and cleanse the church, that it would be glorious and without spot or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. He wants a holy church. And He's in the midst of His church, purging His church. 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins at the house of God. John 15.2, every branch that abides in Him, every believer, He cleanses. He purges. The Lord's going to do that. For the love of Christ, for joy, for usefulness, for answered prayer, for effective witness, He purges. Further, looking at this purging, verse 15... His head and his hair were white like wool. That's one picture of his holiness. His eyes like a flame of fire. But notice how it becomes even more expressive in verse 15. His feet like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. Red hot glowing brass feet. What is that? Judgment. Blazing, molten, pure, refined, gleaming feet of judgment. He moves through his church, purging, exposing sin, bringing it to the light of his flaming eyes, and treading it under his blazing feet. Listen, the Lord purges his church, and we thank him for that. Things sometimes go on in the church that we'll never know about. It's amazing how the Lord brings them out. I've seen it in 30-some years of ministry. The Lord purging, purifying. So as John turns, he sees Christ fellowshipping with his church. He sees him interceding for his church. He sees him purifying his church. Fourthly, he sees him commanding his church. At the end of verse 15, it says, His voice was like the sound of many waters. Any kind of storm on the island of Patmos, would create deafening waves we heard some of them when we were there there's no beach there there's just a rock and when the waves get high and the water gets fierce they slap that immovable rock with thunderous noise that's the voice of the Lord his voice was like the sound of many waters what does that refer to his commanding he speaks loudly in his church He speaks authoritatively in his church, as in Matthew 28, 20, whatever I have commanded you, that's what you're to teach. The voice of the Lord of the church thunders like the pounding surf. Nothing indicates the power or authority of Christ more dramatically than the fact that he speaks the word of God. The church listens when Christ speaks. That's why preachers are told, preach the word. Let God speak. We don't have our own message. The church, says Paul, is the pillar and support of the truth. And we preach the truth. We teach the truth. We speak the truth that our Christ has spoken. As I've often told pastors, my job is not to prepare the message. My job is to preach the message God prepared in the Scripture. He controls his church is the last point. Number five, verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. He controls his church. What does it say? In his right hand, he holds the seven stars. Those represent the pastors, the leaders of the church. And the point simply that he holds them in his hand. He is the sovereign ruler of his church. He controls his church. He lifts up leaders. He takes them down. He blesses churches by opening them. He shuts churches by closing them, as he threatened to do to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. He is the Lord of His church. He exercises sovereign control over His church. That's so encouraging to me. Sometimes you think things are unraveling and they've gotten out of control. Never. The sovereign Lord of the church holds everything right in His hand. So, He controls His church, purifies His church, commands His church through His word, intercedes for His church, and fellowships with His church. Let me just add one more quickly. Because it's encouraging. He protects his church. Verse 16, middle of the verse, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What's that for? Church, chapter 2, makes that very clear. Very clear. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 16 indicate it's a sword of protection. We worry about the cults. We worry about the phonies and the fakes and the deceivers and the frauds and the charlatans who try to destroy the church. Listen, we do what we can. We try to attack them. We try to have a polemic and a defense of the truth. But I want you to know when we have shot our best, our best pea shooters at them and made our little dents, the Lord of the church has chopped their heads off with his two-edged sword. He will destroy the enemies of his church. a tremendous vision of Christ. And the end of verse 16 says, His face was like the sun shining in its strength. He finally got to the face looking at this vision and it was like the blazing sun at high noon. He saw the full blazing glory of Jesus Christ, Lord of His church. And in verse 17, He fell on His face. As a dead man. As a dead man. Such a vision of Christ literally knocked him into a coma. His first response was fear. When you see Christ for who He is, empowering His church, interceding, purging, teaching, commanding, controlling, sovereignly leading when you see his blazing glory shining through the church, you see him high and lifted up. It's fearful. And John fell over like a dead man. He was afraid. He was afraid because of his sinfulness. Because he knew the Lord could see his heart and he knew he wasn't perfect. I keep thinking, you know, about this Toronto blessing thing. All those people laughing. If God really showed up in Toronto, if Jesus really showed up in Toronto, nobody would be laughing. Let alone barking, roaring, or clucking. They would be struck like dead men. Guilty of sin and bad theology. And John, a good man with a good theology, was afraid. Because of the Holiness of the Lord of the church and his own sin. Fear. But then a beautiful closing scene. So good. Verse 17, He laid his right hand on me. A familiar hand, albeit a glorified one now. He laid his hand on me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. a good place to stop I guess because our time is gone. John started out afraid. What's going wrong in Israel? What's going wrong in the church? What's going wrong in my life? Everything is backwards. Where's the kingdom? Where's the glory of Christ? Where's the honor for his servant? Don't be afraid John. End of verse 17. I'm the first and the last. I'm in control of how it starts. I'm in control of how it ends. Young people whatever it is you do Will you remember what the Apostle Paul said? Jesus always causes us to triumph in Christ. Enjoy your ministry. Enjoy your church. Enjoy your spiritual opportunities. Stay faithful and realize this, that the Lord is at work in His church. Whose church we are. We desire for people in the church For all of you, for ourselves, to have victory over temptation, trials, and sin. And we pray for that. We desire the holiness, the virtue, the purity of God's people, of all of you. That's our passion. We desire that you come under the authority of the truth of the Word of God. We long for godly leaders to set an example for you to live by. We desire that the church be protected from satanic deception and lies and error. We desire that the church reflect the shining glory of Jesus Christ. But as much as we desire that, we don't desire that as much as Christ does. He is the real shepherd who wants that more than any and who has the power to make it a reality. Thank him for the unbroken fellowship you have with him. Thank him for the unceasing intercession on your behalf. Thank him that he is willing to confront your sin and expose it and purge it. Thank him that he's given you his word. What a gift. Thank him that he protects you from error, from Satan, with his two-edged sword. Thank you that no matter how frightening your own sin might be as you stand before him, he puts his gentle hand on you and says, don't be afraid. This is our glorious Christ. Father, we thank you this morning for this picture of the Savior.